When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Episode one in post-row era P-R-E. I'm going to try to start with a light question before we really dive into what this all means and where this is all headed. But Alyssa, what's the condiment that you're most likely to throw against a wall? Oh, Erin. I don't know. Honey mustard because I don't care if I never see it again. Honey mustard. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to throw against a wall. Sriracha? Never. Sriracha. Because there's also a shortage. I had no idea. The factory had to shut down. So there's going to be like a a shortage of sriracha until it can reopen in the fall. So if you have sriracha, hug it and hold it close and cherish it. This week, we're joined by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Charlie Jane Anders, and Annalie Newitz to tackle the following questions. What the hell do we do now? How can speculative fiction save us from dystopia? How can we get more swashbuckling in our lives? And can a mortar and pestle bring inner peace? All this and more right now. Alyssa, uh, we got Fridayed this last week in the worst way possible. But we knew it. They didn't really get us. We knew they were going to do it. They didn't really get us. We knew that something was going to go down because um, the Supreme Court is terrible. It's comprised of terrible people making terrible decisions, using terrible logic and terrible reasoning. But there's absolutely no checks and balances when it comes to the Supreme Court because our founders were like, they don't need rules. They'll be fine left to their own devices. It's sort of like, you know, when you're moving, you know, when you're moving houses or whatever. Yeah. And eventually you get to a point where you're just like, you start packing and everything is like, okay, this is where the extra extensions cords cords go. They go in this box and this is where this goes. But then by like day four of packing, you were like, fuck it. It's all going. Goes in this box. I'll figure it out later. Black marker miscellaneous. Right. Miscellaneous. And so the miscellaneous box gets moved and you open it up and you're like, I am not dealing with this. I am absolutely not dealing with this. I feel like the Supreme Court may have been to the founders like the miscellaneous box. They're like, "Ah, we'll just it'll be fine. It's, you know, it'll be fine. And meanwhile, like, you know, 250 years later, almost we're sitting here with this box labeled misc and it's (laughs) like full of ants. And we're like, fuck, like what? There's that screwdriver. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. uh, Well, I already bought a new one, but I don't want to throw this one away because it's perfect. Well, it's not perfectly fine. The screwdriver is taking away the rights of half the people who live in this house. I've lost control of this metaphor. It works. Please interrupt me. Please interrupt me. I can't. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So 
Roe v. Wade was overturned. Planned yep. Parenthood versus Casey was overturned. The person who did the overturning, probably it's Sam Alito, I am going to bet, had one of the biggest erections of his life as that ruling hit the news because he is a gross person. Gross. And, that, and that's made, a gross visual. Yeah, I'm sorry, but he's a okay. gross man who seems to be made almost literally horny by the <laughs> idea of taking people's rights away. Mm-hmm. It seems like a kink. I wish he would go to therapy, but men would rather take the rights away from half of the country than go to therapy. I am really trying to use humor to gird against my uh, dismay It's working. Here. It's working. Thank you for saying that. You know it's not, but you're being very nice in saying that. Um, I, I know that this has been pretty well covered in a lot of different places, and, and most of our listeners by now have had time to process it. So um, let's talk really briefly about you know what Friday was like for both of us and then move on to what we're going to do next. Because I think for now, it's onward and upward because there's nowhere further down to go. At least right? just onward for now. I mean, onward honestly, if it's one foot in front of the other right now, you're winning. You're winning the day if it's one foot in front of the other right now. Yeah. So um, but on Friday, yeah. we kind of expected this to happen. Um, you were awake because you're in a you're in the you're in the east. Yes. I was just waking up in the west. Um, explain to me what your thoughts were like as you saw it come down. So I had because it was Friday. I was enjoying my run to the local bakery to get a jelly donut, and the uh, ever present Jeffrey Tubin had just tweeted that they there was a decision. And so I sat in the car, turned on CNN, and lo and behold, I think the one thing we knew it was going to, I mean, we knew it was coming. I Maybe there was a little smidgy of hope that they'd see how the reaction was when they leaked the opinion a month or however long ago, and that it might have been a little less terrible, but it was actually kind of more terrible. And so, um, I, you know, I got a nervous stomach. I got jittery. It's, you know, we intellectually we knew it was coming but like physically and emotionally you can never plan for your actual reaction and you know I just waited for you to text me back that was my that was my moment you know sitting in the Subaru waiting to see if you were awake Uh, um you know it's it's not it's not funny but I've noticed I had some time to kind of be a little bit removed from it emotionally Mm -hmm. and take a step back and and try to like observe myself I'm going this is like very therapy language. I'm I've been going to therapy. But I've been trying to like take a step back and like observe my own yep. emotional reactions to things. And I was thinking about the day that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Yeah. And how my reaction was just overwhelming emotional. Yeah. Uh I felt like I I could not control my sadness about how how terrible I felt. Mm-hmm. I felt paralyzed by my sadness. I felt like I couldn't do anything. Um, I felt weighed down by it. And on Friday, um, I felt like almost a numbness after yeah, I the agree ruling with that. came in. And then after that, I had this sort of like, we ride at dawn feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Where like I think that the the fact that the draft of the ruling came out a couple months ago, I think back in April, um and that allowed me to have space to like have the emotions around it back then. And I felt like my my shock to regroup 
phase was was a lot shorter than it would have been. Like after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I couldn't even bring myself to write. Right. But on Friday, I was able to write a couple. I I, pu- I published two things on Friday, and I know that everybody has like different things that they do in the wake of of giant political setbacks like this. But writing has always been a way that I try to remain active and engaged and keep people's, you know, connect to people and and have people read it and feel something, feel like they're not alone. And I just felt like, oh, I can do the thing that I do that that feels like it helps. I'm not paralyzed. I can do it, you know. And getting on the podcast today – but after, you know, the the draft came down, there's been a couple moments in the last couple months where I felt like almost paralyzed, like yeah. I can't do anything. And this is not one of those times. No. Do you remember um, on, I think it was Saturday morning at this point, like, I think Friday, we're just like, we're just going to process what's happened. And then by Saturday morning, we were like, wow, we have to really think about what we're going to say this week on the pod because it's really important. And we were both like a little nervous we're daunted you know like and mm-hmm. then we were we, daunted we were daunted and then what happened you and I both got the we fucking ride at dawn vibes and I was like what about this idea what about this idea and we're like let's text Kirsten so we sent so we get Senator Gildebrand involved and it's like that's the thing oh you know I started like DMing state level totally. elected officials being like are we gonna talk are you gonna here's, talk about this here's our idea. are you gonna talk we're- about Paid leave. Call their bluff, Aaron. That was our ride it. That is our ride it on. We're Mel Gibson. He's a terrible person. But in Braveheart, we're just screaming, call their bluff. <laughs> like that okay, is. Okay, you know what? I'm really, just real quick, pause on the Braveheart thing. There's a movie coming out this summer called The Woman King that will be our new Braveheart and we will no longer have to reference Mel yes, Gibson. And it looks sent fucking me the trailer, awesome. And when it comes out, maybe she will come on the pod. Oh my god. I I have I have heard a little about this and I've like seen very very limited information about it, but it is going to be so awesome. Yeah. And I um yes. Okay. What we'll talk about it more when like the trailer's out and people get to like see it and stuff. But oh my god, I can't wait for it. Um so anyway, the we ride at dawn energy, right? Yes. Um we're talking about calling their bluff. Here's the thing. Paid family leave is something that is popular with, I think, 75% of Americans. Yeah. Something like 70%, 70% of Republicans support paid family leave. Uh, the reason we don't have it is because the Senate hasn't moved on it, essentially. Yeah. And um, I think now is the time for the Senate to actually try to do something to support these yeah. people that we're forcing to have children. And you know what? People in Florida pay fucking attention because Marco Rubio's answer to this problem is – unpaid family leave you should get your time but we're just going to make sure you fucking suffer through it in every possible way and he's trying to the thing that's really insidious about marco rubio's plan is that it is not yeah you you don't get money you're borrowing from your own social security you have to work longer to get your social security fuck work longer to pay back the fact that you get oh, and it's only it's only seven hundred dollars seven hundred dollars a month, and I get, I know that there's different you know different costs of living in different parts of the country, but seven hundred dollars a month is not even what the average rent for a one bedroom apartment is and nationwide. Aaron, let us not forget that I have learned a lot personally as a child free adult how much things like formula cost when you and I went on a bender trying to help people find formula and I went out and bought it to donate to places as you did. And I was like, holy shit, this stuff's expensive. Oh my God, this is only 30 bottles worth? Like, 
Marco, someone should send Marco Rubio to the Walgreens. Yeah, somebody, I mean, I would imagine that Marco Rubio is one of those people that like can't even look up as he walks past the tampon aisle because he's just- Afraid they're going to bleed on him. Just a real prude. Um, Speaking of Florida prudes, Senator Rick Scott. Another abject failure. I want to talk, I'm glad we're talking about Florida because Florida- really is has got some promising politicians that are trying to change things but Florida is really also got some clowns like just clown emojis from coast to coast and uh Rick Scott is one of the main clowns of Florida politics he proposed oh my gosh let me I want to pull this up because when I read it my jaw dropped Rick Scott has proposed a rescue America plan that says no federal program or tax law should reward people for being unmarried. Yes. But that the federal government should pay all costs for unwed mothers. Like, who says unwed mothers? It's bonkers. That's so, that's a, such a bonkers phrase. Unwed mo- What are you, like, a Catholic church pamphlet from the early 90s? Like, <laughs> gross. Uh, they So he wants the federal government to pay costs for unwed mothers who put their kids up for adoption. So if and only if. You put your child up for adoption. They will pay. He wants the federal government to pay medical bills. If and only if you put your child up for adoption. But then he wants to make families that adopt children eligible for a tax credit worth up to $14,300. Which will be available if you have an unborn child. What? But but here's here's the other thing. Like, here's what... Give... Why aren't we just giving that money to people who are pregnant like are it's like we're tr- we're literally he wants to literally codify the vessel status of women who have sex and become pregnant and are not married like he's bright he, it's it's so bonkers to me that the number one reason that people choose to have abortions and the number one reason that people choose to give up children for adoption or to relinquish children to adoption financial financial. i know financial so you're you're giving people money to adopt children but you're not giving them money to be able to keep the children that they give birth to that you're forcing them to give birth to i'm sorry fuck that that is ghoulish that is absolutely ghoulish. It is ghoulish, and you know he must look at the charts, Aaron. The charts that embarrass the charts that embarrass the shit out of us. That are like America, worst maternal mortality rate in the industrialized world by like a factor of two at least, or the chart that's like mm, America. Uh, only industrialized country that doesn't have some form of nationalized paid family leave. Um, so he just. He is a uh, he's a ghoul, Aaron. You're right. That's the he's word. A ghoul. He's a ghoul. Any Republican that is coming out now and trying to pretend that they care about mothers is full of shit. They never have. They never have. They never will. All they care about now is appearing to care about mothers. And I think that it's really important for our listeners and for voters and for elected Democrats and for any members of their staffs that may be listening to come out on the offense on this because Republicans are going to try this disingenuous, now we're going to help you garbage, and they're not going to help you. They're not helping anybody. They just want to look like they're helping. They want to look enough like they're helping that they can win enough votes votes to stay in power and then not help. 
So right. because if you listen to them on television, when people are asking them, how are you going to help? Christy Nome did it this weekend. The uh, anti-choice activists that are now populating cable television, which is one of the most repellent things about all of this. They're all like, so no, gross. our nonprofits and local churches are going to help people. And we've activated the network. And it's like, no, 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 no. Make the child tax yeah. credit fucking permanent. Increase SNAP benefits. Improve WIC. Uh, you know, Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, I think has had legislation for quite a while about baby bonds. Every baby born should get a $1,000 bond that matures and they get when they turn 18 or whatever the fuck age it is. So it's like there are actually so many creative things they could do to, to undermine uh, the arguments of people who are saying they don't care about babies. But instead they're just like, you know what? One potluck at a time, Aaron. That's all I can think of. They're just going to drop some hot dish on people who they're forcing into pregnancy and be like, see, we helped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not helping. They don't care about helping. They care about pretending like they, they care, they about, care about power. Like they care about having power over people and making people even more uh, vulnerable than they already are. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to really quickly, before we have to take a break and get to our interview, I wanted to, f to flag something. Uh, do you want to talk about what's going on in Kansas? We had a listener uh, yes. take us off to this, and we really want to highlight what's happening in Kansas. We do. In Kansas, the Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 ruled that the state constitution protects the right to an abortion. Good news, right? They also have a Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, who has been able to defeat GOP moves in the legislature to try to make this not so. However, however, on August 2nd, on August 2nd, the day of the Kansas primary, um, they are trying to, the legislature is trying to add a constitutional amendment called Value Them Both, which would overturn the right to an abortion. So everyone should be paying attention to Kansas Support Laura Kelly, current governor, who is up in 2022, um, and support her because she, like many governors right now in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, they are the frontline defenders between uh, women and their right to uh, govern their own bodies. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's August 2nd. Value them both. We want Kansas voters, listeners to not vote for value them both because it is a stupid title for a bad idea. Um, and just to read the text uh, from what our what our listeners sent us, the amendment quote will affirm there is no Kansas constitutional right to abortion and will give legislators, quote, the right to pass laws to regulate abortion, including but not limited to in circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or when necessary to save the life of the mother. Don't give Kansas state legislators that power. They do not deserve it. Do not. They do not deserve it. So vote against uh, the value of them both constitutional amendment on the ballot on August 2nd. We'll talk about this more. But if you're listening and you have some fuckery going down in your state, because right now all the battles are happening on in states. If there's some fuckery going down in your state you want us to highlight, you should definitely email us hysteria at crooked.com and uh, we'll look into it and highlight the things that we have time to highlight. So Keep that in mind. We're here. We're going to be fighting alongside you from state to state, and we're going to be just as exhausted as you by the time this is all over, but hopefully we'll have some W's. Um, okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got an interview with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. 
So Alyssa, one of the first people that we wanted to talk to when we got done with our primal scream after the Dobbs ruling came down is our guest today. And we're so glad that we have her. Yes, we are. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator Gillibrand, before we get started, I just wanted to say that with this appearance on Hysteria, you are now the guest with the most appearances on the show. So you have taken the title. Uh, We wish it were under better circumstances, but we're really excited to hear what, you know, your reaction was and what's coming next after the Supreme Court struck Roe down. So um, can you tell us just, and I'm sorry if this is too technical sounding, but what the fuck is the Senate going to do about what just happened? Yeah, um, well, that is the $5 million question. Um, To codify Roe, we need 60 votes. Um, I know that we have two Republicans who are interested in guaranteeing these fundamental freedoms in Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And I know they are working right now on a bipartisan basis with two Democratic senators on framework that they feel they can support. The challenge we have is I don't know where the other eight votes come from, and I don't think even they know, because very few Republicans have ever said they're pro-choice outside of Lisa and Susan. So I think it's really problematic. Um, To be able to codify Roe, we would have to uh, dissolve the filibuster and have 50 senators who are willing to do that. We do not have that. We have 48 senators who are willing to dissolve the filibuster. And so we don't have enough votes to do that. So the next question is, is there anything we can do to protect women's health in this moment? And I'm working on some ideas about what we might be able to do, Um, for example, making sure we codify the right to travel across state lines. Um, That would be one thing that if every woman in America could count on, um, they would at least know with resources they could get where they need to go. Um, There's lots of groups around the country that are raising money for those resources so that women can travel and women can uh, access the reproductive care they need when they need it and access um, providers and um, people who can give them their health care options. Um, when you when you eliminate Planned Parenthood and you eliminate clinics across the country, um, women don't even have basic access to basic, safe and, and comprehensive information about what's best for their own health care and what's best for their lives. And so this is the biggest impediment. Um, so we also might be able to do something about um, being able to increase access to um, medical abortion services to actually access um, the medicine that someone could take if they chose to do so and to make sure that that can't be abrogated in any way so that their right to privacy is intact to, to be able to order things by mail. Um, we maybe could codify that. Um, these are the areas where I think we could get 60 votes. And so I'm really working hard right now coming up with ideas about ways to protect women's lives immediately given this circumstances while we also work on the electoral side of electing more people who believe in this so we can actually have enough votes to codify. Kirsten, there were over 50,000 abortions in Texas alone last year. How is the GOP, like, what's their plan? How are they going to take care of all of these women and children? Is it just one fucking church potluck at a time? Well, the truth is, is that the Republican Party has been unwilling to work on things as simple as um, increasing affordability for daycare, increasing uh, prenatal and postnatal health care, increasing actually having a national paid leave program that's comprehensive and universal. 
And so I'm also working now trying to find Republican support for those types of legislation that could at least give women the ability to afford to have children, to afford to have good health care before and after giving birth so that they don't die in childbirth, um, making sure they have the support they need to be parents, uh, affordable daycare, universal pre-K and paid leave. Uh, those rights and privileges and support are necessary, especially if there's going to be women who have to bring pregnancies to fruition that otherwise could not or would not choose to do so because they simply can't afford um, the ability to raise children. And so these are realities. And uh, I'm, I've literally been texting every Republican that I have a relationship with saying, will you work with me on paid leave? Will you work with me on codifying row will you work with me on all of these issues because we need more support um senator you know i i think that we're kind of getting to a point where it, it like you're kind of implying it's really important i think for people to call the bluff of republicans like if they care about families like why don't they do something to support families well that's what yeah and that's why these other issues are highly relevant because um if we can i mean any first of all this debate is all about the right to privacy, and, and people have to understand this. If you don't have the right uh, to access reproductive care when you need it, um, Clarence Thomas made it really clear. He wants to deny your access to birth control. He wants to deny your access to do what you want to do in your bedroom and deny LGBTQ equality. He literally wants to change laws that we have counted on for over 50 years. And this whole line of cases that are based on the right to privacy, it's part of our whole constitutional framework. Um, the Declaration of Independence was about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. They codified that in the Constitution, guaranteeing life and liberty in the 14th Amendment. And so this whole thing is about life and liberty. And previous Supreme Courts believed that this right to privacy exists because of that guarantee for life and liberty, because of the guarantee in the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. Um, that's why they were so clear in saying all of these rights should be protected. And so I do want to call the bluff. Do they no longer, do our Republican um, senators no longer believe in the right to privacy? Do they no longer believe in the right to tra travel out of your state uh, to access health care? Do you no longer believe in the right to privacy in the mail? Like, these are much bigger questions that I think have unanimous support in America. And so I would dare senators to not stand for those basic principles. Um, because they can keep hiding behind abortion rights when the whole topic is far bigger. The reason why women are furious is because it's about their equality. It's about their ability to decide life and death decisions about their bodies and when they're having children and how many children they're having and under what circumstances they're having children. This is what the choices are about. And so it's far bigger than just an issue of one procedure. It's literally about, do you have bodily autonomy? Are you a free citizen? Do you have freedom? Do you have liberty? Do you have life? And so that's what's so infuriating is that if you reduce it to discussion of a procedure, you've literally lost the whole picture. It's about, are you an equal citizen under the law? And so the, this is what we have to focus on. And so that's why maybe these other types of votes we can call um, to call, not only call their bluff, but to clarify who are you and what you stand up for? And does the constitution not apply to women? Because that's what these, these Supreme Court justices are saying.
if you're a woman, the Constitution does not protect you. Doesn't protect your freedom to, of religion. Doesn't protect your right of search and seizure. Doesn't protect your due process rights. It doesn't protect any of it. And so that's what these justices have done. And that's why this decision is so... Um, I, I don't even know the right word. It's it's inhumane. It's barbaric. It's it's unconscionable. And because it's about so much more. And I just wish that um, people could see how bad this decision is for humanity because it treats us as second-class citizens. Look, listening to you talk, it felt like you were speaking my brain. And I am so glad to hear an elected official speak like this and so powerfully about something that people are so rightfully upset about. Um, I know that a lot of our listeners want to do what they can to support reproductive freedom to the extent that they're able and those other issues that you mentioned to the extent that they're able. What's the best way for our listeners to apply pressure to their elected representatives and also to help people who need reproductive health services during this very awful time? So um, there are a lot of resources available for women who need access to health care. And there's lots of hotlines. There's a national hotline, 1-800-772-9100. Planned Parenthood is working overtime to make sure they can make sure that women um, and transgender individuals who need support have it uh, in in, in every part of the country. So reaching out to and supporting Planned Parenthood. Um, There's an organization that's just in place to help people get access to medicine um, for medical services, plantseedpills.org. So these are just three of the many organizations that um, women in need of support can go to, but also that people can give resources to just support if this is something that is uh, an issue and a passion for them. Um, In terms of electoral and political involvement, you have to reach out to your senators, your congress members, and talk about what reproductive freedom means to you, what this decision does to undermine your liberty, your uh, freedom, and your right to privacy. Talk about why this right to privacy matters so much to you in all its contexts so they understand the weight of this decision. And then, and then urge them to participate in any legislation that can guarantee those rights on any level, any level, because, you know, we have just a few more months of this administration where we are guaranteed a Democratic House and a Democratic um, Senate. Uh, that may end, that may be reduced, that may be abrogated in some way. So we've just got a few months and we need to legislate on any of the things we mentioned today, if possible, between now and the end of the year. So urging participation in any state you may live is necessary. And just light a fire under every senator and every House member to say, I care about this so much. And this is literally about my my individual rights as a human being. It's a human right and it's a civil right. So make it as big as it really is, because it is that big. And uh, we have to fight and we have to engage and we have to talk about it all the time. We also have to get, make sure the men in our lives that we love dearly and that love us care as much as we do. Um, this is not a fight that women can win alone. Um, it's why we continue to fail. Uh, we still only have 25 women in the Senate. Uh, we don't have a majority of women in the House. Um, these issues can become ephemeral and procedural to male colleagues who doesn't impact them. 
Um, but I would just dare your loved ones to imagine what it would be like to have no control of their body for eight, for a full 10 months where you can't decide what you're eating, what you're doing, what you're wearing, what your life is going to be like and what your future holds. And that's really something they can't imagine generally. So push them to imagine it and describe all the things that happen. Um, I think it will be helpful for them to know that when you make a decision as big as that, and as important as that, that it should be one you make um, it, it with, with all the love and commitment that you make when you bring a family into this world. Uh, it shouldn't be forced upon anybody. And God forbid you're the 12-year-old who's raped by her dad, or God forbid you're the um, person who's raped and doesn't want to carry that um, child. These are decisions about when you're having your children and with whom you should get to make. So um, I just hope I just hope people can understand the weight of the moment and understand the impact it's going to have. Um, I, I had a meeting this morning with uh, young girls who um, were, were able to escape from Afghanistan. And there's a few hundred of them still stuck in Pakistan. And they were talking about what it's like to live under the Taliban and what it's like to live in a repressive country and how they don't have freedom of what they can do, what they can say, what they can learn, what they can wear. And I said, well, American women are feeling some of that today. Like, we are being told what we can do and uh, what our lives will look like. So I just, I hope people understand this is a very bad place for our country to be in. And we have to fight much harder and much more strategically. And we have to literally care about politics as a life and death issue because it actually has become one. And so please urge your loved ones and your male friends to care as much as you do because everybody, everybody who cares about freedom and liberty should care about this issue. Mm -hmm. Well, Senator, thank you so much for being with us. Hopefully next time you're with us, uh, it'll be under less awful circumstances and uh, we will have realized that we kind of have the power to overrule the Supreme Court because there's more of us than there are of them. Um, and I hope we're able to harness that power. Thanks, Kirsten. Well, thank you both. And I share your passion and your commitment. And I would love to continue to lead as the number one participant on your show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can talk call soon. on me at any time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just lying on your couch, enjoying the fact that your two-year-old child is leaving you alone for five blessed minutes. I or, love that for Viore. Is that, you know what? That seems like a real perk of Viore. <laughs> it is. It's perfect. It's cut perfectly for lying down and just savoring a moment to be left alone. It's great. <laughs> 
<laughs> five the, stars. No five, comment. 100% great. That's the type that's my favorite sport. The new the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Grab one of these new colors before they sell out and check out the women's daily legging which features a high waist drawstring tie and upgraded no slip fit. All things that are absolutely essential in a legging. Essential. Uh, I love these leggings. They are cuz you know like not everybody's the same. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like I need a little bit more room around my booty. So I size up a little bit, but then it's, t- it's usually too big in my waist. And so now I just just pull that drawstring. And exactly. I don't show I don't show any crack when I bend over. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. See, you have your baby and I have my butt crack. <laughs> <laughs> For guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy lined athletic short out there, and the men's Sunday performance jogger. Oh my gosh, Alyssa, my brother, who I have given Viore performance gear to. Yes won an ultra marathon over the holidays. I saw that. That is so incredible. He ran 80 miles in the freezing cold. I don't think he was wearing his Viore core shorts because that would be dangerous. Dangerous. But, but he he loves wearing them to train, and uh, I'm so proud of him. I'm so pr- Viore played a role in his ultra marathon win. <laughs> Uh, plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. And welcome back. Alyssa, does it sometimes feel like we're living in hell? Oh, uh, yeah. Like the worst. I mean, and you know, I, once I get hot, I don't cool down. So yeah. I mean, it's like the worst version of the way that things could go. And I was thinking about, um, first of all, this duo that we have on today. I've wanted them on for like over a year. I think the last time Charlie Jane and I saw each other, we had lunch and I was like, let's do a sci-fi episode. And then like stuff got crazy. And now we're going to finally do a sci-fi nerdery episode, but it is in the context of talking about dystopia. So I'm super excited about having these two on. First of all, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. Her latest book just came out in April. It's the latest sequel from her series called Unstoppable, which is being adapted to TV for Amazon Prime Video. Congrats. She writes sci-fi among other genres and co-host the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct with her partner, who we'll introduce next. Welcome, Charlie Jane Anders. Hi, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Um, up next, they write science fiction and nonfiction and host the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct with the aforementioned Charlie. Their most recent book is Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and their latest novel was The Future of Another Timeline, which follows a girl trying to make the future more inclusive of feminism. Welcome, Annalie Newitz. Annalie? Hey, thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Uh, I want to start with a tweet of yours that was prescient. (laughs) Um, You tweeted some time ago, the year 2035. Today, your smart toilet seat sent you a text. Your analysis shows you are pregnant. Congratulations. Your mobility status has been updated. You will not be permitted to leave the state until this life is born. 
what prompted this tweet and why did you unleash this evil onto the universe? (laughs) (laughs) So I actually originally tweeted this a a couple months ago, but then re-upped it for obvious reasons. And, you know, it came from hearing people talking about how it's it's going to be fine if Roe is overturned because we're going to figure out some way to deal with it. We'll use technology. We'll organize online. Um, a lot of this coming from, you know, people I know in the Silicon Valley area and, you know, in sort of tech and science journalism. And I was just like, look, all of this technology that you think is going to save us is going to be used to keep you in line and to keep you in place. And magical toilets that tell you how healthy you are can be turned against you. And so I was just, you know, like a lot of people, I think when I'm scared, I get really angry. And I wanted to unleash a little bit of that anger in the form of satire just to remind people that, you know, everything that you think is beautiful and shiny can be co-opted by the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminded me of that Black Mirror episode, right? Where uh, have are you have you all seen that? There's an episode I think Jodie Foster directed it and it's like this woman's daughter is pregnant and she tries to sneak a abortion pill into her smoothie and there's just all this like it's it's very uh dystopian. Um but dystopia is a space an idea that is explored a lot in genres where both of you spend a lot of time. So Charlie Jane, how has dystopia been depicted in science fiction? And like, what are some of your favorite pieces of dystopian fiction that have seemed really prescient in this moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, science fiction has a long history of depicting dystopia and utopia. And, you know, oftentimes, things that you know, oftentimes you have dystopias that are a little bit contrived and a little bit like everybody has to wear a ficus on their head on Thursdays or whatever. Like the rules of the dystopia <laughs> are often kind of heightened in a way that that I think is intended to show how people will adapt to any kind of arbitrary uh, imposition of power, like any arbitrary set of rules that people with power put on them, people will just adapt to it and go along with it, which unfortunately has been proven true by history many times. I mean, eventually people will rise up, but for people are really good at adapting to like, okay, we're going to all wear ficuses on our head now on Thursdays. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. And we're going to pretend it's always been that way. Um, you know, I mean, a, a dystopia that Annalie and I have been talking about a lot lately is Brave New World because it is such a it's about class based oppression and it's about industrialization and how people can be turned into kind of pieces of an industrial system or in our case, a post industrial system. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that the, the dystopian stories that I tend to gravitate towards are the ones that give us hope that show that we can fight back that show that we can actually rise up and make a difference and that uh, we can build better institutions. Uh, And actually, I want to shout out the Hunger Games series. I feel like people got sick of the Hunger Games books, but those books are fundamentally about, you know, rejecting terrible power structures and, you know, finding, rallying behind somebody who is young and ready to burn everything down. And uh, in the end, spoiler alert, they kind of do burn everything down. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to add is that the thing that's really good about dystopias is they often make us think of ways to resist. So when that tweet that I did went viral, 
The thing that made me so happy was that immediately people started responding with ways they would resist. And they were like, <laughs> I'm going to pee in the garden. I'm going to get my the next my next door neighbor who's been through menopause to pee in my toilet and I'm going to pee in her toilet. And people were like, how do we hack the toilets? How do we hack the security systems at the border? Oh, by the way, the grid in Texas keeps going down so you can escape into the next state while the grid is down. And so it's it becomes this way of like imagining how we're going to, you know, say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a super interesting point to bring up that that science fiction and like speculative fiction kind of helps people get in a mind space where they're brainstorming ways around dystopia. And I really wanted to talk specifically about how, you know, sci-fi I'm using that word as like shorthand, but you know that it encompasses several genres. Had when I was like a little kid, had kind of a reputation of being something was that was like for boys. It was like space stories for boys. But I think right now we're living in a time where it's really clear that that genre is really a space where marginalized and queer voices have um, are really, really important. So Charlie Jane, I would love to hear your thought about your thoughts about why sci-fi speculative fiction are so such fertile places for queer thought and for queer voices. Yeah, I mean, I think marginalized people have always loved speculative fiction and have always been writing it. Like, there have been queer and, you know, and female, obviously, and uh, disabled and BIPOC speculative fiction writers for as long as the genres have existed. Um, what's new in the last, like, you know, five, ten years, really, it's not that long, is that the doors have been cracked open and we're starting to see more of these marginalized voices getting to be published by major imprints and getting to be seen by more people and getting to kind of have more of a voice. And that's been a huge struggle. That has that has not just come about through the benevolence of publishing. It's come about through a lot of people fighting to open that door for so many of us. And uh, But I feel like at its root, you know, speculative fiction, it's about you know, imagining the future or imagining other worlds, but really fundamentally it's about imagining how things could be different and about how the, you know, I mentioned the thing before about like we all just start taking it for granted like, oh yeah, we're going to wear a ficus on our head on Thursdays. You know, speculative fiction is the thing that helps us to see that the way things are, the way that we sort of take for granted things always have to be, actually is not immutable and we can make it different. And the world can be whatever we want it to be. And it sort of lets us imagine alternate possibilities, both good and bad, and kind of stress test them in, in a story and kind of show them in a human context. And it just, it allows us to kind of see beyond what's our immediate reality, kind of. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that in Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak and the other uh, book in the Unstoppable series that's out so far? Yeah, Victories Greater Than Death is the first book in the series. And there's so much stuff in there where I'm just like indulging in imagining things being different. It's a space opera, kind of space fantasy series. And one of the things that happens in the series is uh, they have a universal translator that translates any language into any other language. And it makes it so that... Um, you cannot uh, you cannot misgender anybody. You always know someone's correct pronouns and you always get their pronouns right. And it's clarified in the second book that even if you 
deliberately set out to use the wrong pronoun for somebody, the universal translator would just fix it before anybody else heard it because they'd be like, this is clearly a miscommunication. We're just going to fix this. And, you know, in those books, I just kind of decided that people always ask for permission before they touch anybody else, except maybe in a fight scene. Um, and there's just a lot of stuff where I'm imagining alien civilizations where, like, we go to one planet where only people who are pregnant are allowed to serve in government. Um, and, you know, people What's of all genders can like? be pregnant. Uh, it's awesome, actually. It's the it's Kralio home globe. It's the home of the Kraliors. And, you know, they're basically like only people who are pregnant are thinking about the future in the way that you need to be thinking about the future in order to serve in government. So we're just going to have a rule. And it also means you can't be a career politician. Like, you know, it's pretty much impossible. And so people who are pregnant, and they could be men, women, whatever, those are the ones who get to serve in, in government. Um, I have another planet where people lay eggs, like the, the people who live there lay eggs, and then they can never find their own eggs again. They just go and find someone else's eggs when the ice thaws. And so it's just like it. families are whoever you decide to be with, kind of. And I feel like there's a thread running through those books of chosen family and people, kind of, queer chosen family especially. And I, I do think that imagining other kinds of families and other kinds of gender and sexuality is one of the things that speculative fiction lets us do. And, you know, I could go on and on. There's like gender fluid people and non-binary people and trans people and that those books who get to be awesome and save the galaxy. And that's a thing that's really important to me is seeing people like myself as heroes. Mm -hmm. That sounds so cool. Um, Anneli, um, can you talk about the future of another timeline? I think that there's a lot in there that, um, I think there's a lot in there that's really relevant right now at this moment in uh, in the news. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an alternate history where abortion was never legal in the United States. And the main characters are a group of feminist time travelers who call themselves the Daughters of Harriet because in their alternate timeline, Harriet Tubman was the first uh, female senator because – um, as you probably know, uh, in the 19th century, there was all of this um, in our timeline. <laughs> there was all of this discussion that if um, women got the vote at the same time that freed uh, enslaved people got the vote, um, that Harriet Tubman would be a perfect candidate. She was a national hero after the Civil War, um, and she would have been um, potentially the Republican uh, candidate. And um, so she has won. And there are all of these kind of benefits. But at the same time, um, abortion has been illegal. And so these time travelers um, are going back in time to try to uh, make abortion legal in their present day, which is 2022. Um, and I, I wrote the book a few years ago, so oh. I don't, <laughs> sorry about that. If I unleashed um, <laughs> some kind of dark timeline um, on all of us, but um they, they go back mostly to the 19th century to fight Anthony Comstock, which, again, feels very um, kind of on the nose now because, of course, as we're talking about rolling back Roe, um, a lot of states are thinking about reviving their Comstock laws. Anthony Comstock is responsible for the laws that made it um, unlawful to um, disseminate information about birth control through the mail um, he was a big um, advocate for uh, censorship in the mail. Uh, he arrested or was part of the arrests of a number of um, activists who were helping women get abortion or abortifacients. 
uh, in the late 19th century um, and a couple of women that he had arrested committed suicide because they didn't want to go to prison. And he would brag about it, you know, in his his speeches. He would say, great, we've got these women to kill themselves. So he was a shit sack. Yeah, um, a, real, and, a real Alito, if you will. Yeah, and it's, to me, the thing about writing that book was I really wanted people to understand how fragile our rights are as people who are women, as non-binary people, as trans people, anyone who kind of defies the anyone who's not a man, a cis man, basically, um, you know, is is constantly kind of under siege. But we also have the power to change things. And that's a big message in the book is that even if you don't have a time machine, you can still change history. Um, when the characters go back to the 19th century, they don't just shoot Comstock. That doesn't work. It, it turns out that's not how history works. You can't just shoot a guy because if you shoot Comstock, then you get Lomstock or Bipstock <laughs> or Whoopstock um, or Woodstock. <laughs> um, and, and then they just come along. So they have to join with a social movement and they have to help um, other movement leaders to, um, to defeat Comstock. And so, um, you know, spoiler alert, they do prevail uh, in many ways, but... Um, they also, you know, suffer and have to deal with a lot of, um, hardships. And so, um, it's really about what does it take to build a movement? What does it take to change people's minds? How do you come back from someone like Comstock and his laws? How do you fight that? Because they keep coming back. You know, it's, it's like the timeline keeps bending back toward these kinds of um, dark social movements that want to restrain our control over our bodies. Hmm. Charlie Jane, do you agree with that? Do you believe that the arc of history bends toward a black hole? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that, you know, if you study history, you see, like, it's not that so much that history repeats itself. It's this that history contains a set of things that are likely to happen over time. Like, you know, wars tend to happen you know, horrible, oppressive moments in history where, you know, certain groups of people, usually cis white men, have to try to oppress and dominate and control everybody else. Those tend to happen with alarming regularity. There are certain things that history just like warns us about that are going to keep coming around and around because they are patterns, because they're ingrained in, you know, our cultures and uh, especially like, you know, culture here in the United States has a lot of issues like around rugged individualism that keep kind of bringing back these horrible social genocide and stuff genocide (laughs) yep settler colonialism you know institutionalized racism all of that um so yeah I think that uh it's more just that we have to be constantly vigilant and that we can't kind of ever just like declare victory and this is a thing that made me uneasy, you know, for the last like 20 years, because I felt like I kept seeing people declaring victory when it was obvious that all any victories we were achieving were, you know, subject to being rolled back at any time. And that you, if you look at history, victories do get rolled back. And that's just a thing that happens. Um, I wrote a short story back in 2005, 2006 called How I Went Back to the Closet about a future where queer people queer people all have to go back into the closet because things have just gotten so repressive again. And, uh, you know, I, I think about that a lot. I think that this is a thing that could happen. I mean, do you, when, when did you see, so you wrote that in 2005. 
When did you see that that might be the arc that we're on or like the timeline that we're on? Like, did it, I know that after, you know, Obergefell was what, 2013, 2014. But, you know, I, I think that you're right that there are all these moments of people like declaring victory, declaring victory, but it seems like we're kind of backsliding. Was there a moment for you that were, where you were like, oh, we're backsliding, we're moving toward that story? I mean, the 2016 election for sure was like a big wake up call for me personally, as it was for a lot of other, I think white people, especially, you know, found that a wake up call. Um, I think a lot of people of color were like, we've been telling you for years. Um, and, uh, but I think the 2016 election for sure was a huge wake up call. I think, you know, um, as a trans person, I feel like even before the 2016 election, uh, when I saw some of the conversations around Caitlyn Jenner transitioning back in, I think it was 2015, um, I started to get really uneasy because I could see, I could see the wave coming already. Like just the way people were talking about Caitlyn Jenner. And this was a very high profile, like for a lot of people, this was the most they'd ever thought about trans people. And I was like, well, oh, this is going to get bad if we're not careful. And indeed it has gotten really bad for trans people especially. The thing also is that, you know, when we're thinking as science fiction writers about what's happening, like what are the tropes in history that we're kind of picking up on, you know, it's not so much that we all suddenly go into a darker timeline and we all kind of realize, oh my gosh, you know, even though it seems like we have queer rights, we could be pushed back into the closet or we could be deprived of our reproductive rights. It's more that we're always in a number of different potential timelines. And this is one of the things that's kind of driven me nuts about coverage of um, Roe being overturned is that, as you guys know, and as you've covered on this show, you know, there were many, many people in the States who already barely had a right to abortion. Um, and that was something that had been going on since the 80s. And it's not a new idea to think about how, for example, in parts of the country, people who are gay really can't be out or people in certain jobs can't be out. Um, and so it's not it's not so much that suddenly we take a turn. It's just that suddenly we notice um, suddenly one thing changes that makes it really obvious that, you know, we don't have rights that we thought we had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. I also wanted to talk to both of you about something that felt at the time like we were living in this sort of speculative fiction reality. I mean, that's Gamergate. Uh, I thought Gamergate was a moment where, and I know that that's like the G word and sometimes it's like bad. You could, it was the word that could not be said like Voldemort. Um, but, you know, you and I, are, we, we all, three of us, were at uh, Gawker Media at the time that Gamergate, which is now we're seeing as the precursor to some of like the Russian bots that helped fuel 2016, some of the crazy misogyny that was like aimed at Amber Heard, you know, like there's all this sort of, it was like the first time troll farms and bot manipulation was used to make it seem as though there were more people out there who believed something than there actually was. And it started out as a backlash to more equitable representation within gaming. Can you, do either of you feel comfortable kind of explaining like what that looked like at the time and how that kind of dovetailed with the way that, that science fiction and, and speculative fiction have kind of talked about the timeline that we're on? 
I'll say a couple things. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we weren't directly affected um, by by Gamergate, so I don't want to sort of make it seem like we were on the front lines there um, because we weren't covering video games. Um, so to to us, I think, um, or to me, it felt like it was just the first moment when um, tools that had been used in kind of conventional um, psychological warfare went over into the culture war. So I don't think anyone was surprised to think, oh, there's Russian bots out there that are trying to affect, say, the outcome of a U.S. election. We all get that. That's that makes sense. Um, but then it spilled over into this into this area that it hadn't been in before. Um, and so and again, we're seeing that now with the Amber Heard um, pylons, which are clearly just a lot of it is operatives and, you know, bot farms or like semi-automated um, you know, accounts. Um, and so that's something that we're dealing with all the time now. And so I feel like that's really what Gamergate signaled was that now the culture war is also a kind of psychological operation that might even be semi, you know, controlled by a government, um, which is a very weird feeling. It's like, oh, are we back in 1952 or something? Um, apparently we are. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just remember it was it was super weird because like, you know, it was happening to people that worked at a, a related website under the Gawker Media umbrella. You guys were at io9. I was at Jezebel it was happening to people at Kotaku. And I think one writer at Gawker and um, or Gizmodo maybe. But it was it was like very weird to watch what was like clearly this coordinated bot army manipulating reality to the extent that it was impacting companies bottom lines like what would happen is uh you would get you know a company would get flooded with all of these complaint emails and stuff that were not necessarily from real people and then the company would be like oh we're no longer advertising on this platform because we got all these complaints and it ended up it was it was absolutely crazy and at the time i remember feeling like i'm living in a fake world right now it was it was so strange um i wanted to talk a little bit about something a little more upbeat that, that's non-dystopian. Um, I want to hear from both of you about what you love most about writing sci-fi fantasy, spec fiction, and futurism, and like what makes a great futurist or speculative work of fiction. What can our listeners read right now that will help them explain the world, and what's something that will help them feel better about the world? Uh, Charlie Jane, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I love writing speculative fiction because of the thing I mentioned before about being able to kind of imagine how things could be radically different. I love escapism. I love the notion of being able to kind of escape in my mind into other realities. Uh, you know, I feel like I, I actually wrote a book about this called Never Say You Can't Survive, uh, which came out last year. Uh, I feel like imagining other worlds and imagining kind of, you know, complicated uh world building that has like all this cool stuff in it and that where you have characters that you get super invested in as you're writing them and you get to kind of take them through all these like colorful, wild, amazing scenarios. I feel like that's just like one of the best forms of self-care that you can have when things are getting really messed up. And it's a form of resistance to kind of let your imagination go because, you know, I feel like the the people who are trying to keep us down don't want us to use our imaginations. They want us to keep our imaginations in check. They want us to like not 
be able to imagine other ways of being or to even just like have flights of fancy because they only get to keep us under control. And if, if we're just scared and utterly focused on what they want us to be focused on and the moment we're able to like use our imaginations to kind of free ourselves and, and kind of visit other worlds in our mind, we're already one step away from the state that they want us to be in, which is this kind of captive state of, of fear and anxiety and internalized oppression. And I, I feel like it can be really hard to see, you know, what's right outside of our, our view. And, you know, I feel like we're all very programmed to not see the world around us. The example I often give is like you walk down the street and you just don't even see the unhoused people on the sidewalk anymore because you've kind of trained yourself to not see them. And they're right there and they're living in a very different story than the story you're living in. And it can be hard to actually stop and look at them or pay attention to them and hopefully give them some money because um, we've all trained ourselves to just unsee them. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff like that in the world that we've just trained ourselves not to see or to not be aware of. And using your imagination is one way to break through that and to kind of become more actually, even though your head is allegedly in the clouds, it also kind of breaks you out of your normal thought patterns. It allows you to kind of see the world around you more clearly and kind of be more aware of your surroundings, ironically. Um, things that we could be reading that will, you know, help us to get through this. I mean, I definitely want to shout out Future of Another Timeline by Anna Lee. I think that there's a lot of great kind of political stuff being written right now. Um, I just read a fantastic book that comes out in August called The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings. And, you know, because I'm a goldfish, I can only remember the last three things I read. <laughs> so I'm just going to shout that book out. It's about a world like ours, except that there are laws against witchcraft and women who are not married by the age of 30 have to register with the state and be tested to see if they're a witch. And Wait, this just happens test? to fall. I'd have been a um, witch. It's really weird, and <laughs> you, you have to read the book. And the the it becomes clear as the book goes on that all of these like anti witchcraft laws are disproportionately applied to black women and queer women and trans people and queer people. And it's it's, a, it's such a clever kind of beautiful way of thinking about patriarchy. I literally just read that book, and I'm just like obsessed with it now. Megan Giddings, who wrote Lakewood, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And Lakewood was about a person who like a town where people uh, do are undergo medical experiments in order to pay off family debt, which is like also like crazy. It's a yeah, that she's <laughs> a little too writer. real. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's that's coming out in August. That comes out in August. It's an incredible book. Everybody should read it. That's like that's my recommendation that I'm going to throw out there. Awesome. Uh, same question for you, Annalie. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I love most about science fiction and fantasy is the fact that um, with certain stories, you just get plunged into this completely alien world where you don't know the rules and you're not sure what's happening. And as the story goes on, you have to figure it out. And I think that that's really good training for life. Um, I think it would be fantastic if more people learned how to just plunge into an unknown world and cope um, and learn its ways instead of trying to crush it and turn it into a version of your own world. <laughs> um, and so those are the kinds of stories that I love most. And I really wanted to 
echo what Charlie Jane was saying about the importance of escapism. And I think that right now that the moment that we're in is dystopian enough in reality that I'm really looking for stories that try to chart a way out, stories of resistance, stories of better worlds. And I've been thinking a lot about how the golden age of science fiction in the 1950s, you know, people often look back at that and say, like, that's when science fiction was was great. You know, it was it was optimistic and, um, you know, told stories of, of, you know, going into space. And if you think about it, the 1950s were one of the most politically dystopian periods in U.S. history. Uh, a lot of the women and BIPOC folks who had gotten jobs during World War II were kind of forced out of them. Uh, the civil rights movement was um, in its kind of most um, difficult struggle for recognition. Um, you know, it was a period where you could not be out and queer. Um, the Cold War was forcing lots and lots of leftists and progressives to either hide what they were doing or was also forcing them out of work. It was, of course, the era of McCarthyism. And so it seems to me clear that science fiction writers at that time were coping with it partly by suggesting, like, look, we could get together, work together, make things into a more equitable, free uh, place, you know, make make Earth better um, or come together as Earth and, and meet aliens and find out about them. Um, you know, it's like later in the 60s, we start getting things like Star Trek, of course, which is a very utopian story. But I think that in the 50s, like now, people were just hungry for stories that that were kind of opposing what they saw around them politically. And so when I want to recommend books for folks, um, I'm thinking along those lines And so I would definitely recommend um, books by Becky Chambers. Um, She's written a whole series of novels that are um, space operas about um, marginalized characters like illegal cyborgs and polyamorous aliens and how they all get together and and slowly fight for freedom. Um, And if you need like a great queer romance that's about um, climate change, I would recommend um, C.L. Polk's book, um, which is C.L. Polk has a series that starts with the book Witchmark, um, which is set in kind of an alternate reality that's sort of World War One-ish, where um, certain people's powers are being drained away to power the kind of electronic infrastructure of the modernizing world. And so our incredibly gay hot characters are fighting against this system of exploitation. Um, Another great uh, author who um, is P. Jelly Clark, who has been winning a ton of awards lately for his work. And he has a great novella called um, Ring Shout, Uh, which is all about this group of like queer and trans and um, lefty women in the 20s fighting against the KKK, who, of course, are actual monsters, like actual real monsters. So you need monster hunters to fight them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, they need to be swashbuckling, hot, queer women. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's my requirement. And I'm I'm happy that Jelly (laughs) agrees with me. 
Is that um, like a is that like a keyword that you can search on Goodreads is like swashbuckling and then they'll pull up a bunch of like squashbuckling books and then you can be like, okay, now now let's get into the hot queer women. And, yeah, okay. I think so. And so <laughs> on that note, my final recommendation is Nicola Griffith um, has a great new novella called Spear, which is a swashbuckling queer retelling of Arthurian legends about Percival. And Percival is like a super hot, competent queer woman who's basically hooking up with the Lady of the Lake, as you would. Of I mean, course. of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> she's right there. Yep. She's, she's got a lake. She's yeah, got a lakefront house. She's got a lake. <laughs> she's got political power. Um, That's right. Intrigue, mystery. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Good for her. I just have to interject real quick because Erin knows I know very little about speculative fiction. And so I wanted to participate by listening today. But I did Google swashbuckling in Goodreads while we were sitting here in addition to ordering your books. And let me just tell you the first thing that comes up. Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. How a generation of swashbuckling Jews carved out an empire in the new world. And after that, <laughs> it is a swashbuckling tale of high adventures, questionable ethics, and professional hedonism. But I did want to say, a pirate's life for she, swashbuckling women through the ages. So anyway, I just wanted to say, do do, do oh. that at Goodreads because it is successful. Swashbuckling like, as a category sounds like very promising. Is a thing. I, I like... My my whole brand is swashbuckling Jew, so like I'm just I'm <laughs> number all about one, it. number one, and all I did was search swashbuckling. Um, you know, I just pictured that on a T-shirt, and I would offer a compliment if I saw anybody wearing a T-shirt that's a swashbuckling Jew on it, or swashbuckling almost Anything. any other word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe I'll get exactly. it from my husband. Oh, yeah. Anybody just saying a swashbuckling Jew? I don't know. Anybody can swashbuckle. I feel like totally. That's the thing. Yeah, it, it makes everything better. You know, swashbuckling queer, swashbuckling feminist. We need like Ooh. more sword feminists. More just in general, sword feminism. I feel like, and see, this is what we we're talking about when we talk about our imaginations. Like, what would sword feminism look like? Are there any ways that we can apply that to the way that we conduct ourselves politically? Probably. Um, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're all going to talk sanity corner. And uh, so stick around. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.
And welcome back. We're going to talk about things that are keeping us sane this week. We're not going to talk about what we're feeling petty about because there's plenty to feel petty about. We just need to cling to the things that are making us feel good. But before we get to that, a little bit of housekeeping. This week on What a Day, Travel hosts a drag queen history tour. Actor and activist Terrence Smith joins to discuss his iconic presidential campaign as his drag persona, Joan Jet Black. That's amazing. <laughs> Plus, RuPaul's Drag Race alum Peppermint shares how she's used her platform to advocate for the queer community. Listen to new episodes of What a Day each weekday morning wherever you get your podcasts. And here's a fun update for people. I'm going to be doing a crap load of What a Day episodes in July. Whoa! So, yeah, if you can't get enough of me yakking, subscribe to What a Day. Which I, n- I never can. I never can. Oh, that's... That's so nice. This week on What a Day is going to be incredible, though, so I'm definitely going to tune in for that. And, uh, okay, house has been kept. Let's get to Sanity Corners. Alyssa, I'm going to start with you. What's keeping you sane this week? Okay, gang. So my cat Midge is a real fucking asshole about getting her nails clipped. And she has no teeth, so you think it would be fine, but her nails do this weird curl thing if they get too long. It is something that when I attempt to do it, I start sweating. I start cursing. My husband's like, it's not that bad. Leave her alone. I'm like, it's not. They're going to grow into her paw pad. So everyone, I ordered what I thought would help me. And it is a headlamp. I ordered a fucking headlamp that I put on so I can I can quickly get through her little because she's white and her nails are white. So it's very hard to see her nails. So you have a headlamp to do like surgical manicures for cats. Yes, I did that. But and that is keeping you sane. Yes, because now I'm not sweating as much. I'm not as anxious. But also, I accidentally kept the headlamp on when I went down into the basement, and I'm like, it's a whole new world down here. So you, so I'm just saying, I have really. I mean, maybe I'll post a picture. Maybe I won't. I've just, I have a headlamp. I am like, I am, I don't know who I am or what has happened to me, but it brings me great joy. And the fact that I can cut that little dick's nails without it taking up my entire morning is a huge, is a huge sanity saver. But also, I'm going to be finding other uses for my headlamp. My cabinets may get rearranged. I don't know what's going to happen, but... In the basement, I was there for a half hour, and you would have thought I was a baby with, like, tape on her toe. I was like, one thing, then the next. I was like, this is getting better and better. So, yes, I have a headlamp. I have a headlamp. Mm-hmm. Headlamp, okay. Seems like you're getting a lot of joy from the headlamp. I, really I think did. a headlamp is something that is that I never would have thought. This is the first time a lamp of any kind has been featured on Sanity Corner. Um, Take an edible and go on Amazon. You'll end up with a headlamp. Yep. See, that's an important that's an important component of this story is the edible. I think that really that heightens a lot. Um, my sanity corner this week is I've got tomatoes. I grew them and they're ripe. You're my favorite gardener. I got I I did it. I I the bugs didn't get them. They got beautiful and juicy and red, and I and I've been eating them. And there's nothing better than a garden tomato it is so there's so much better that's like there's so much better than store tomatoes that they should be called something different like there's so, it's like eggs it's like if you can get real fresh eggs it's they're so much better than store eggs do that, you have 
free range tomatoes? <laughs> no, no. The tomatoes are captive tomatoes. <laughs> They're not just like wandering. But we have like a garage that we have uh, we have access to the roof, and I um, and the roof is like reinforced, and so I grew the tomatoes in containers on the roof of the garage. They get constant sun. They're just like very, very happy tomatoes. And yeah, really bringing me a lot of sanity this week, eating homegrown tomatoes. Uh, Charlie, do you want to go next? What's keeping you sane this week? Yeah. So sometimes when I'm stressed about the state of the world and kind of anxious about life in general, which has definitely been the case in the past week or so, uh, first of all, going to the Trans March, which was just like last Friday was definitely a thing that made me feel sane and happy because I was surrounded by other amazing trans people. And there was just like a giant mob of us like cruising down uh, Dolores street. And it was just like, it was so beautiful to be in that community and to feel completely surrounded by that community. But also when I get really stressed about the state of the world, one thing I like to do is obsessively work on playlists or mixtapes or whatever. And so I've been working on creating the perfect playlist of cover versions of the song Funkin' for Jamaica by Tom <laughs> Brown from like, I think 1980 is when the song was originally released. And um, there's like a million cover versions of that, of that song. That song has been covered so many times. And so I've been very selective about picking <laughs> the best cover versions and wonder few songs that sample it too. And, you know, there's like hip hop covers, there's reggae covers, there's jazz covers. There's like a lot of different covers of that song. So I now have a, like exactly one hour of Funkin' for Jamaica. And um, maybe if people remind me, I'll post like the track list somewhere. But it's like, it's very, very excellent. And it's definitely making me very happy. Oh my goodness. If you post the track list, we will put it in our show notes because that okay. sounds really fun. That sounds like a really, like one of those things. It's like if you just played that playlist at a party, it would take people a few minutes to be like, wait, is this? the same song <laughs> over and over again and and like do i love it cuz i feel like it's something that people would be like yep i do actually i do love an hour of different covers of this song over and over it's, again it's there aren't there are some songs that that would not work with where you'd just be like oh god okay it's that song it's another version of that song but funkin for jamaica is just such an amazing song and it just kind of establishes this really solid groove um, and the cover versions are different enough and like they all approach like the key aspects of the song in interesting ways. Like, you know, the thing where Tom Brown randomly says, Tom Brown, he's an ordinary guy. Do they like include that or not? <laughs> um, how do they, how do they reinterpret that to discuss somebody in their bed? You know, stuff like that. But just like, it's, it's a really just, it's, it's a great song to listen to multiple covers of because it's just like. It just gets inside you and you just are like, I could have three hours of that song. It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I really hope you do post that track list because I'm, I will, I'll put it on my Instagram. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Annalie, how about you? What's keeping you sane this week? So I have a lot of rage that I need to get out. Um, and, you know, you can't always like punch someone who deserves it. So, um, I would say I, you can, ra that's a rarity. When you it's, can. A, it's a rarity. Yeah. Usually it's like you get to watch someone else doing it on YouTube or something. And so I made, um, Samin Nosrat's recipe for pesto Ooh. because it involves a mortar and pestle. And I had recently in a, an edible fueled purchase gotten a very hefty, uh, mortar and pestle, 
Um, and so you just, you fill it with like, um, basil leaves and you just crush them and you like pound and you squish and you like grind it against the edge. And, um, and you know, you can say whoever's name you want to be pounding and crushing, um, out loud. Um, it's totally open. This is a, still a free land, at least in my mortar and pestle. Um, and it was very, it's, it's great because you get out your feelings and then, you um, have a really tasty dinner. Um, and so I've been, I did that and that was very helpful. And then the other thing I've been doing um, is I've been researching um, wave energy conversion devices. Um, so wave energy conversion is a new, you know, it's a, it's an alternative form of energy where you use the energy from the motion of waves in usually in the ocean, um, you convert it into electricity. Um, and the thing that's fun about them is that, first of all, anyone can design one. You can have really cheap, simple ones, or you can have incredibly expensive ones that are like funded by like a million different science agencies. Nobody knows what model is going to work. And they're all goofy as hell. Like they either <laughs> look like weird sausages floating on the water, or they look like little paddle boats, or they look like strange kind of um, like dildos that kind of float up and down <laughs> um, and kind of, and there's often like lots of talk about like the pumping of the, of the device, um, depending on which model you're using. And there's all these great like YouTube videos of people explaining them. And this is going to be the future of energy for the, for the earth, you know, this along with wind power and solar. Um, so it's very serious and there's a lot of funding going into it. But at the same time, there's just so many like undergrads, especially in engineering who are designing these and making these really wonderful heartfelt videos about them on YouTube. And it's just very calming uh, to learn about engineering and science and think about this better future that will happen when we start deploying these wave energy converters. So highly recommend cruising through YouTube, looking for people talking about their wave energy conversion devices um, and, and looking for them to start existing off the coasts of, you know, all of our countries. Oh so. my gosh. I love that. I love both of your sanity corners. I think we got, we got bonus sanity. Corners. Yes. We got extra sanity corners. That's, that's <laughs> incredible for a week where we really need extra space to feel sane. Um, so Annalie and Charlie Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. Alyssa Mastromonaco, thank you for being my ride or die. Thanks to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand for joining us via phone from her car, which is as bad bitches do. Yeah, she's. She, it was urgent enough that she was like, to the hysteria phone and <laughs> gave us a call. Uh, listeners, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening all the way through this episode. If you like what you've heard, please let your friends know. Rate us, review us on iTunes, and there will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. And Fiona Pastana is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers. And our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroot.
In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers, and we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible, so go to podsurvey.com slash hysteria and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. And thanks for your help. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.